saying that for about a month, um, and Lord willing, we're going to get through Mark 6 today. Um, so if you don't have a Bible with you, like I said earlier, there should be one in a seat back around you. Uh, and if you don't own a Bible, you can keep that, take that, give that uh, to somebody who uh, needs one if they need one, or you can keep it for yourself. Uh, we love giving Bibles away. So if you are using a seat back Bible, you're looking for page 841, 842, somewhere uh, in that range um, for uh, for the page we're looking at. So uh, this morning, as you turn in there, I'd like to thank um, our audiovisual team. Um, there are people who come every day to make sure that uh, we have words on the screen, to make sure things sound the way they're supposed to sound when I mess up and have um, feedback coming through my mic or I don't change a battery. They're the ones who save the day and make sure everything works. So thank you guys. They, they literally... Um, are not in front of everybody. They, they're literally in the back behind you doing work all the time. So everybody on that team, on the AV team, thank you so much. Um, if that's a, an area you'd like to serve, if you'd like to, um, you know, you're not necessarily the kind of person who wants to be up front, but you'd like to be serving in some way, we can train you. Even if you're like, hey, I can't turn a computer on, let alone run the AV board, we will train you. We will get you plugged in. We will get you connected. So um, if you're interested in that, go ahead and use those connect cards, circle AV team, and we will follow up with you. So um, this morning we're going to be in Mark 6, but I want you to get there and then uh, kind of keep a finger there for a little bit uh, because we're gonna, it's going to take us a little bit to get there. I want to start this morning a little different than what we normally do. Uh, I'm going to read you a couple of passages, and I am uh, not going to give you any real, I'm not going to break it down for you. I just kind of want to let it sit for a while, and um, hopefully we will come back to them a little bit later. But I'm going to read you two passages. I just want you to hear it. I just want you to think through it, try and visualize the, the conversations that happen in these passages, and then um, we'll pray and we'll jump into Mark 6. So uh, the first passage I want to read for you this morning comes from Exodus 33. One day Moses said to the Lord, You have been telling me, take these people up to the promised land, but you haven't told me when or whom you will send with me. You have told me I know you by name and I look favorably on you. If it is true that you look favorably on me, let me know your ways so I may understand you more fully and continue to enjoy your favor. And remember that this nation is your very own people. The Lord replied, I will personally go with you, Moses, and I will give you rest. Everything will be fine for you. Then Moses said, if you don't personally go with us, don't make us leave this place. How will anyone know that you look favorably on me, on me and on your people, if you don't go with us? For your presence amongst us sets your people and me apart from all other people on the earth. The Lord replied to Moses, I will indeed do what you have asked for. I look favorably on you and I know you by name. Moses responded, then show me your glorious presence. The Lord replied, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will call out my name, Yahweh, before you. For I will show mercy to anyone I choose, and I will show compassion to anyone I choose. But you may not look directly at my face, for no one may see me, see me and live. The Lord continued, look, stand near me on this rock. As my glorious presence passes by, I will hide you in the crevice of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and let you see me from behind, but my face will not be seen. Then the Lord came down in a cloud and stood there with him, and he called out his own name, Yahweh. The Lord passed in front of Moses, calling out, Yahweh, the Lord, the God of compassion and mercy. I am slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations. I, forever, I forgive iniquity, rebellion, and sin, but I do not excuse the guilty. The next passage I want to read for you guys is from 1 Kings 19. 
But the Lord said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah replied, I have zealously served the Lord God Almighty. But the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you. They have torn down your altars and have killed every one of your prophets. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. Go out and stand before me on the mountain, the Lord told him. And as Elijah stood there, the Lord passed by, and a mighty windstorm hit the mountain. It was such a terrible blast that the rocks were torn loose, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, there was a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, there was the sound of a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak, and he went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And a voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are good, and you're good all the time, and we thank you for being good. We thank you for getting us here this morning, even in the cold. We thank you for heat. We thank you for light. We thank you for sweaters and hats and gloves. Um, God, we just thank you for these things that we don't always think about, but we know that you provide. God, for generations, you have invited us. You have invited humanity into your plan of redeeming all things back to yourself. We don't necessarily understand it. We can't explain it, but you have called us to be part of what you're doing here. And we are thankful and humbled and overwhelmed at times by that. So, Lord, I pray that you would give us a clear vision of what it means to be lights in the world. Give us a clear vision of what it means to reflect you to this world. Lord, as we open your word today, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be glorifying to you. We pray all of these things because of Jesus and in his name. Amen. All right, we're going to jump into Mark 6. We're starting in verse 45. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw, them, he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Let's stop there. So to catch us up, um, Jesus says this comes immediately, as our key word for Mark, immediately, this comes right after Jesus feeds the 5,000 on the hillside, right? Jesus and his disciples go to get some rest. They go to get away from the crowds. The crowds meet them there. Jesus teaches for a long time. It starts to get dark. Finally, uh, the disciples say, Jesus, send these people away so that they can go find some food, so that they can go get some rest. Jesus says, no, we're going to feed them right here. And he performs the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 with a couple of loaves of bread and a couple of fish. And so then, right after that, it says, immediately after this has happened, he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida. Um, he forced them into the boat is basically how that gets translated. It's a pretty forceful world. It seems that the disciples don't want to leave. For whatever reason, Jesus says, it's time for you to go. You need to leave right now. The disciples don't want to go. Jesus basically Trump plays the Trump Jesus card and says, no, you need to go. I'm Jesus. Listen, get going. We don't know from Mark's gospel why that is, but there's an urgency that Jesus says, I want you out on the water. He forced them to get out. He says, I'm going to handle the crowds. Now, understandably, the disciples don't want to leave because for them to get from where they are to Bethsaida, it's about from a four to six hour uh, 
trip across the sea, four to six hours in this boat. And if they go, how's Jesus going to get there? How's Jesus going to get to the other side on his own? It's four to six hours in a full boat with a bunch of strong fishermen. How's Jesus going to do this on his own? Jesus says, don't worry about it. He dismisses the crowd himself. And once the, the crowd scatters, once everybody leaves, it says Jesus goes up to the mountain to pray. And we saw something similar like this happen in chapter 1, way back a couple months ago when we started this series. In chapter 1, Jesus spends the day preaching and healing, and then at the end of the day, he goes off by himself to pray and be with his dad. He spends some time in prayer. Now, this is not the main point of the sermon, but every time we see it, we're going to talk about it. Jesus... God in the flesh took time to be alone with his dad. He took time to be alone and pray. He took time to spend with his heavenly father. Do we? Do we make time in our weeks? Do we make time in our days? Do we make time at all ever to just be in prayer, to just spend time with God? Jesus made it a priority. If anyone didn't need to make it a priority, it was probably Jesus, but he made it a priority. Are we doing the same? And so we see Jesus go off onto a mountain to pray. He's off by himself, overlooking everything. And he looks down from this mountain and he sees the disciples. He sees the boat. It says the disciples have been rowing for quite a long time. Mark makes it very clear. They're off, separated from him. He's up on the mountain. He looks down in verse 48. It says he saw that they were making headway painfully for the wind was against them. Headway painfully. That word painfully is literally torture. It was a torment. It was hard work trying to row into this storm. The wind is blowing directly at them. These are A bunch of these guys are professional fishermen. This is what they did. This is their normal nine to five, and they're having a real struggle trying to get against this wind. They're rowing and rowing and rowing, and they're not getting very far. They're exhausted. It's a very hard struggle. See, sometimes we convince ourselves... That as long as we are faithful, as long as we are obedient to God, everything's going to be good. Everything's going to be fine. Everything will be smooth sailing. The disciples were obedient. Even when they didn't want to be obedient, Jesus had to force them to get into the boat. And they go rowing, and yet the wind is against them. See, just because you are faithful to what God has called you to do, just because you are obedient, doesn't mean everything's going to be fine, hunky-dory, sunshine, and rainbows all the time. I mean, really, you could almost open the Bible and just drop your finger in at any spot, and you're going to see someone who's a follower of God having a hard time in some kind of predicament, right? Just a couple of weeks ago, we looked at John the Baptist. How does that story end? With his head on a platter because he spoke truth. Obedience doesn't actually mean everything is going to be smooth sailing all of the time. But what it does mean is that God will be with us, and we see that in the text. It says about the fourth watch, Jesus comes out to them. Fourth watch is somewhere between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. So if we play out this timeline, it starts to get late. Jesus, gets, Jesus and the disciples get across to the other side. He starts teaching. He's teaching for a couple hours. It's starting to, it's starting to get a little bit later. Jesus feeds the 5,000, and everyone has eaten their full. So however long it takes for 5,000 guys to eat to their completely full and then clean up afterwards, and then he sends the disciples off, and they're rowing and rowing and rowing. He's off on the mountain praying, and then it gets to about 3 a.m. we got hours that they've been on this water rowing, and they haven't made it very far. He sees his guys. Jesus looks out from the mountain. He sees the disciples out in the middle of the sea struggling with the wind, 
struggling for hours, not making it very far. And in the midst of their exhaustion, Jesus comes out to them. Jesus walks on the water. Throughout the Bible, we see that water has a symbol of, of sometimes chaotic, sometimes even evil. It's hard to control, and the only one throughout Scripture that can control the water is God. We see it all the way back in Genesis 1, Genesis 1, 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep water, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Way back in the beginning, God creates, and he is creating as he is over the chaos of the waters, he creates. Exodus 14, 21 and 22. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night, and he made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. God is able to control and part the Red Sea so that the Israelites can cross. Even this idea of walking on the water is something that only is attributed to God in the Old Testament. In Job 9, it's a long chapter about all the things God has done, can do, that no one else can. And in Job 9, 8, it says, Who alone stretched out the heavens, and who alone tramples the waves of the sea? Only God. Over and over, we have seen Jesus show his power and authority over all of creation. He is the King of kings, the one who holds all things together. And so, of course, if Jesus is going to show up, he's going to come walking on the sea. I mean, what other kind of entrance is God going to make? Yes, he has been the suffer he is the suffering servant. He is fully God, fully man, and he lives a fully human life. But every once in a while, we get these glimpses where he says, but I'm also fully God, and so I'm going to walk out on this water. I'm going to do something nobody else can do. I'm going to make an entrance that only God can make. And so it says in verse 48 that he meant to pass them by, but they called out to him. Now, an easy reading of that is that Jesus was for some reason trying to sneak past them or he wanted to walk past them so that they saw him and they called out to him. And the easy reading would be, you know, in times of struggle, when things are hard, call out to Jesus, he'll be there for you and he'll come get in the boat with you. Yes and amen, that's true. Yes, in times of struggle, call out to Christ and he will be there for you. But I don't think that's the point of what's going on here. Those passages I had us read this morning, I intentionally didn't want to give any kind of reference or explanation. I wanted to let them just sit. And hopefully maybe you've heard from those two passages and from this passage of Mark that you've made a little bit of a connection, even just in some of the wording. Moses had the chance to have God pass by, to have God reveal himself, get a glimpse even of just the back of God, just a small glimpse, a small taste Elijah at his weakest, when he's exhausted and he feels like the world is against him and he's frustrated and he's depressed, God moves by him and reminds him, Elijah, you're not alone. He has this small breeze and comes by and God says, look, Elijah, I am with you and I am for you. But here, now, in the New Testament, in Jesus, no longer is God just revealing his back. No longer is it just a faint whisper when God passes by. God reveals himself. God shows up fully incarnate in Jesus. Jesus is God in the flesh, the fullness of God dwelling in him. And he is here to say, I am here with you and for you. 
When you see me, when you see Jesus, when we study and read Jesus, we are seeing God reveal himself completely and fully to us. And so we've seen throughout Mark, like I said, Jesus as the suffering servant. And every once in a while, Jesus says, yes, I've come to serve, but I'm also God. I can walk on the water. I can do what no one else can do. I am in control of all things. And so he passed by them. He revealed himself to them. God shows up revealing himself to his, to his disciples. And how do they respond? It says, when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost. And they cried out, for they saw him, and they were terrified. They weren't terrified by the storm, because like I said, a bunch of them were fishermen. That's just a Tuesday for them. They see Jesus, and it freaks them out, and with good measure, right? I mean, if you're rowing in the middle of a storm, and then somebody's walking on the water, even if it's Jesus, somebody's walking on the water, you're going to be freaked out. It's not a natural, normal occurrence. But you see, they freak out. They're terrified because they misunderstood, because they misidentified Jesus, because if anyone should have understood, it, it should be the disciples, right? Shouldn't they have understood that it was Jesus coming out to them? Because at this point, they literally, just hours ago, watched him take five loaves of bread and two fish, and they fed 5,000 men. And those 5,000 men were full. And then each one of them, at the end of that, they go out and collect what's left over, and they have 12 baskets left over, one for each of the disciples. So not only did they watch Jesus perform this miracle, they're sitting in this boat with a basket full of tangible reminder of what God just did on the shore. So when they see him walking on the water, yeah, it's going to be a startling, startling sight. But shouldn't they have understood? See, I think this is one of those times we can look back and we can look at their reaction to Jesus and they can, the fact that they got terrified and they don't understand. And we can look back now and say, how did you guys miss this? How did you guys not understand what was going on here? And yet here we are in 2019 with all of the things, all of Scripture to look back on, all of the ways that God has revealed himself time and time again in our lives, in the lives of those around us, and we still miss it on a daily basis. We aren't paying attention, or we think that God's not going to show up. We think he can't show up. He can't possibly work in this situation. We allow ourselves to get overwhelmed and frustrated and terrified by our situations, and we forget, and we lose sight or we just flat out ignore who God is. And so they are terrified. We see in verse 49 and 50. They saw him walking on the sea and they thought it was a ghost and were terrified. So they cried out to him. And Jesus responds to their cry. And he says, take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. Take heart. Have courage. Be strong. Do not be afraid. Why do you have anything to fear? Why can he tell them to take heart? Why can he tell them not to be afraid? It's because of what he says in between those two commands. He says, it is I. It's two words in the Greek. It's ego, a me. It's literally I, I am. So there's two ways you can read that. It's basically like the colloquialism of like, hey, it's me, guys. Don't worry about it. Or you can read it as I am. When Moses was out in the wilderness tending to the sheep, being the shepherd, he sees in the distance a bush burning. And he's watching this bush burn, but the bush is not being consumed by the flames. And so he goes to check it out. 
And he gets close to the bush, and the bush starts talking to him. He hears a voice. The voice tells him, take your shoes off. You're on holy ground, Moses. And God begins to speak to Moses, and he tells Moses, I've heard the cries of my people. My people are slaves in Egypt, and it's time for them to get out. It's time for them to go to the promised land, the place I have set apart for them. It's time for them to stop being slaves. And Moses, you're going to be the one to bring them out. You're going to be the one through my power, through my authority. You're going to go up to Pharaoh. You're going to go up to the most powerful man in the world. And you're going to tell him, let God's people go. And Moses makes all kinds of excuses and tells God all the reasons why God's got the wrong guy. And finally, he agrees and says, okay, fine. But if Pharaoh asks me, if the most powerful man in all of the world asks me whose authority I'm talking under, whose authority I'm following these commands under, who do I say sent me? And God says, you tell him the I am has sent you. Not the I was, not the I'm going to be, the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega, the everlasting King of kings and Lord of lords, the God of all creation, the everlasting I am. Jesus, here in the middle of this storm and the water, was passing by, was revealing himself to them. He does it in a magnificent, big, awesome way by walking on the water because he's in control of that water. And then he straight up just says it. He says, you don't have anything to be afraid of. You can be strong and take courage because I am is with you. I am is here. And I'm not going anywhere. And then we see in verse 51 and 52 that Jesus isn't just talk. He can walk it as well because he doesn't just say, I'm with you. Be strong. Now, good luck. But he gets in the boat with them. That's the God we serve. A God who says, I'm with you, and I'm for you. And then he gets in the boat in the middle of your struggle with you. He says, I am with you, and he literally gets in. See, God has always been in relationship intimately with his people. Whether in the Old Testament we see him leading his people through pillars of fire and clouds in the wilderness, or he's filling the tabernacle with smoke, or he's up on the clouds and and when they're at Mount Sinai, there's always these tangible reminders of, hey, I'm here for you. God always made his presence felt somehow. And then we get to the New Testament, and Jesus himself, God in the flesh, was here on earth. But he's not here in a physical body anymore. And knowing that that was going to be the case, Jesus says before he leaves, before he sends into heaven, he promised, he said, look, God's not going to go anywhere. Jesus tells his disciples, yes, I have to leave. I'm going to a place to prepare things for you, but I'm going to leave you the Holy Spirit. And then the Holy Spirit shows up, and he will be with you. The Holy Spirit, who is fully and completely God, the Holy Spirit who will guide you and lead you and protect you and encourage you and rebuke you and challenge you, God will still be with you, Christian. You have nothing to fear. You can be strong. God is with you every step that you take. Every day he is always with you. You can have courage. You can have no fear because God is with you if you have put your faith in Christ. So God, Jesus gets in the boat and the wind dies down. And it says they were astounded. Why? Because they didn't understand the loaves and fish. Their hearts were hardened. So what is this scene? What is Jesus walking on the water? What does that have to do with him feeding the 5,000? They literally, just hours ago, watched him do what no one else can do. Showed him, showed how the control over nature that he has. 
the control over this world that he has. It was not a silly parlor trick. It was God breaking into humanity and doing something only God can do. And the disciples didn't get it. And then he walks on the water. And instead of being comforted, when when he walks on the water, instead of being comforted, instead of taking heart, they were afraid. They were terrified. Even when the wind breaks. See, he's already done this once before. If you go back to Mark chapter 4, they're in a boat, there's a storm, and Jesus calms the storm. And they were astounded, and they asked the question, they said, who is this? Who is this that the wind and the waves obey him? They were astounded back then, and now months have passed, and they still don't understand. Their their reaction is the exact same way that it was back then. And this right here, they're astounding. Their misunderstanding is a warning to anybody who thinks they're a Christian. Because proximity to Jesus does not equal faith in Jesus. Just because you grew up in a Christian home, just because you go to church, just because you're in a community group and you serve and you put money in the offering plate and you go to a Christian school or you went to seminary, those things do not equal faith. These 12 were around Jesus every day. They watched him. They heard him. They saw the things he did. And at this point, they still don't get it. I mean, real quick, I want to give you a real quick recap just of Mark of the things they've seen Jesus do. Not to mention him teaching with all authority, but just seeing what he's done. In chapter 1, verse 21, Jesus heals a man with an unclean spirit. In 129, he heals Peter's mother-in-law, followed by basically a whole city showing up and getting healed. In chapter 1, verse 40, he heals a man with leprosy. Chapter 2, he heals a paralytic. Chapter 3, he heals a man with a withered hand. Chapter 4, he calms a storm. Chapter 5, he casts out a legion of demons from a man. Later on in chapter 5, he heals a woman who's been bleeding for 12 years, and then he raises a little girl from the dead. Chapter 6, he heals some more sick people, or some more sick people, and then he also feeds the 5,000. And that's just Mark. That's just what we've gotten through. That's not even the other Gospels. That's a bunch of miracles that he didn't even talked about. That's just the stuff that we've seen. That's just, and this is what the disciples have experienced, and yet they don't get it. See, just because you're around Christians, just because you're around Christian community doesn't mean you're going to automatically have faith. Doesn't mean you're automatically going to be saved. So for those of you who say you are a Christian, why? Where is your faith? What is your faith in? What makes you a Christian? What saves you? What is it that makes it so that on that day when you meet God, on that judgment day, when you go face to face with your Creator, He's going to welcome you into heaven. As I've said before, the biggest question you can ask, the biggest answer you need to come up with is, who is Jesus to you? And what is the gospel? What is the gospel? You have to have an answer for these things, and not just a route regurgitation of some facts, not just some knowledge in your head, some facts and figures about what the gospel is, what it means to be a Christian, but in your faith in your heart, in your life, do you actually believe these things? Do you actually believe them in such a way that they are life-changing? Or is it just an insurance card that you keep in your pocket in case you need to pull it out in case something happens? See, the disciples watched 
over and over again. Jesus performed miracles. Jesus teach like nobody else could teach. And they continuously missed the mark. And I would hate for you to miss the mark. I would hate for you to not know. Because look, we're not promised tomorrow. And in actuality, we're not promised the rest of today. Jesus was God in the flesh. He was fully God and fully man. He lived a perfect life. And in doing so, he was the trailblazer. He was the one who showed us how to live. He was our Savior. He died on a cross in our place for our sins so that anyone who would confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord would have eternal life. What is the gospel? What is the good news? The gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, died for our sins and rose again, displaying his absolute power and authority over everything. So that there is forgiveness and there is new life for anyone who believes, both now and in eternity. Don't ignore it. Don't miss it. Don't think just because you're around a bunch of people that you are saved by association. Just because your parents were Christian, you're going to get in for free. It is a choice you have to make. You have to put your faith in Jesus. It's a decision you have to make for yourself. And so the disciples sit in this boat with Jesus. The winds die down. They finally get to the other side. We're going to pick it up in verse 53. When they had crossed over, they came to the land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And then when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard that he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. Jesus shows up and people recognize him. People realize who he is and what he can do. It's interesting that it says they landed at Gennesaret. Go back to 45. Jesus got, told the disciples to get in the boat and go to Bethsaida. The wind had blown them off course by a large margin. They didn't actually end up where they were originally intending to go. Sometimes obedience to Jesus means you end up in places you didn't originally expect. Sometimes obedience to Jesus means you end up somewhere entirely different than what your life plan is. And so people start to recognize Jesus. He's got popularity, and the people start bringing the sick to him. They had the faith that believed even if they touched the fringe of his garment, they would be healed. And anyone who did was healed. Now again, just like the woman with the bleed from a couple, cha from a couple chapters ago, it's not about Jesus' garment, right? His clothes didn't have magic powers. The people recognized, they realized that Jesus had a power, that Jesus himself has an authority that no one else could. These people couldn't answer every probably every question about who Jesus was. They didn't have a deep understanding of the theological significance of everything Jesus did and said. They had faith. They had faith that said, Jesus alone can heal. They had faith that said, Jesus alone can take my brokenness and he can make me whole. Jesus alone can take what has been broken by sin and he can redeem it. Jesus doesn't solve every problem in these people's lives. So number one, all of these people he heals, at some point they die. Their faith in Jesus doesn't make their lives perfect and free of all kinds of uh, obstructions, all kinds of evil. 
doesn't make their life free of opposition of any issue, but their faith in Jesus does bring a redemption. It brings a redemption to their lives and a new life for them to live, one based solely and wholly on their faith in him. That's what the disciples were missing, was faith. Faith to say, I don't have every answer. I don't understand even the questions to ask sometimes. But I know God came in the flesh. His name is Jesus, and he lived perfectly. He was arrested on some bogus charges, and he took a beating and the abuse, and he took a sentence of death, and he died on the cross and was buried, and then he rose from the grave. And in doing so, he proved once and for all that it is God who has the last word on sin and on death and on hell. And he proved that it is God alone who has the power to take what has been broken and make it new, to take those who are helpless and hopeless and give them new life for anyone who would put their faith in Christ. It's not Jesus plus your good works. It's not Jesus plus being nice. It's not Jesus plus what you put in the offering place. It's Jesus alone. Faith alone in Christ alone for your salvation. And you have eternal life with God. But that's not just a, it's not just a future thing. It's not just about your eternal life. We say it a lot around here, is that when you are saved, when you become a Christian, you are saved from the wrath of God. Yes, and you, your eternity is set, but you are saved to be a blessing to others. You are saved from the wrath of God, but you are also saved to be a blessing to others. Your faith, this relationship with God, this new identity in God, it starts here and now, and it should change things here and now. It gives us hope. It invites us into what God is doing here and now. He calls us to be lights in the world, to point people to him, to share the good news of great joy that we know, to share our story of what God has done in our lives. He calls us to respond with action here and now, that when we see injustice, when we see abuse, when we see corruption happen, to take a stand both with our words and with our actions to say, no, that's what God is not. God is not for that. God is for love. God is for justice. God is for righteousness because those are the things that he is. These people, when they get to the shore, these people who are healed, even the disciples in the boat, no one really fully understands who Jesus is at this point, right? The disciples are terrified. The people are showing up because they know Jesus has power. And Jesus meets each of them where they are. He does not scold the disciples. He does not lecture. He shows up and he brings comfort and he brings healing. But he does so only as God can. He walks on the water in the middle of a storm. He allows people to touch even his garment and be healed. Jesus brings comfort and healing, but he's the only one who can do it the way he does. Only he can tell the disciples, take heart, do not be afraid. Only he makes the winds stop. Only he can heal people just by his presence. Why? Because he is the I am. It's the point that Mark never wants us to forget as we walk through this gospel. Mark is showing us who Jesus is, revealing to us who Jesus is. To go all the way back to Mark 1.1 at the very beginning, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's the main goal of Mark's gospel, to remind us and show us Jesus is Christ, the Son of God. He wants us to know and never forget he is the Messiah, the one who was set apart to defeat Satan, to crush Satan and redeem all creation back to himself. He is the Son of God, God in the flesh come to earth. He came to seek and save the lost, the broken, the marginalized, and only he can do it. Only he can say to us, 
take heart. Do not be afraid. And have it actually mean something. Have that actually comfort us and encourage us and help us in the midst of our exhaustion. And only he can do that because he says, I am and I am with you. Do not lose sight. Do not forget. Jesus is with you and for you and loves you and he's never going anywhere. He is here always and forever and he is the king of all creation. He is the I am. Let's pray. God, we thank you. Lord, we thank you for the Gospels. We thank you for these accounts of what Christ came to do. And as God, as you reveal yourself through Jesus to us, God, we are humbled and amazed. Lord, help us to just stay humbled and amazed. Help us as we read, as we study these books, as we study the gospel, help us to, to sit in and be amazed at the things Jesus does. Even though some of us have grown up hearing these accounts over and over again, he walked on water. God, let that, let that fill us with excitement and overwhelm our senses. As we study your word, help us to take those things that we learn not let them just be head knowledge, but also be things that we live out in our lives. Let them change and affect the way we live. Let them motivate us to be the lights you have called us to be. God, I pray if anyone here does not know you, hasn't put their faith in Jesus, that you would step in, that your Holy Spirit would do what he does and break down all walls and barriers so that they might accept the free gift of salvation you are offering, the free gift of grace the free new life that you are offering. That they would put their faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and for their new life. God, help us as we go out into the world. Help us to be the lights you have called us to be, to reflect your goodness, your grace to others, to point people to you so that you would be glorified. We pray all of these things because of Jesus. And in his name, amen.